Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit, because it's by the Spirit we're saved. And I ask, Father, that you would come and minister to us this morning. You would use me as a weak vessel in order to speak to these, your children, whom you love so much. And so, Father, I ask for your anointing. I ask for your blessing upon each one who's here. And use this time as a time of fellowship with you, the living God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And, oh, um, Nikki's side of the family had a death. And so that's why Frank and Nikki aren't here. The funeral service is today. And Vi's not here because um, Frank and Nikki's youngest child, Brooke, is sick. And so Vi's home taking care of her. And just to let you know, because you're thinking, Pastor Frank Jr. is supposed to be up here this morning. And it's the old man, you know. You know, and, and I'll tell you, there's a, there's, sometimes there's, a, there's a, a, a trick that the Lord plays on us. And every month I write up what's called a preaching schedule. So each week, Frank and I both know exactly what we're going to be preaching on. When you go through Numbers, there's some difficult parts. And I came across this part in Numbers where it talks about a woman's belly swelling and her thigh rotting. And I thought, that's a good one to give Frank. <laughs> so I did. And as cruel fate would have it, Frank's not here, and so now I've got it. So we'll see what we can do with it. You know, we have to understand that all Scripture uh, not only is for our encouragement, but for instructing us as an individual. We have to realize that the primary, primary responsibility for ministry is you and I as individuals. You know, it's not big movements, or even our church. It's you and I individually are called to minister to others. And therefore, most of Scripture, not all, but, but most of Scripture deals with the individual. You know, how we c can become stronger in the Lord. For what purpose that God would use us. You know, um, a lot of people say, well, I'm just one person. You know, what difference does it make whether I'm useful to the Lord or not? Well, I want to share with you a quote from... Edward Everett Hale, some of you might have read some of his uh, writings. He was born on April 3, 1822, and he died on June 10, 1909. And he was an American author, historian, but most of all, he was a pastor. And uh, here's what he wrote. This is a quote from him. I am only one, but still, I am one. I cannot do everything but still, I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do something that I can do. Isn't that beautiful? And so when we look at that, we understand why God puts such an emphasis on ministering to you and I as individuals. That we might be able to grow in the Lord and be useful to Him. Because every single one of us has the Spirit of God within us. And all of us realize that this life isn't about this life. It's about the life to come. And so consequently, our mission is to encourage people in the life to come, that they might have eternal life. You know, uh, years and years and years ago, I was talking to a neurosurgeon, and he was telling me, he said, you know, there are things that we just don't understand. He said, there are so many things about the brain that, you know, we have been able to, uh, you know, diagnose and to look at and this and that and through different surgeries we can help with this and we can help with that but he said most of the abstract things about the brain we don't understand at all and and this man was not uh, a believer 
But, you know, we all know that you have like the medulla oblongata that takes care of involuntary responses and this and that. And we have certain parts of the brain that take care of this and that. But think about creative thought. You can't touch a part of your brain and think of the song of a bird sitting in a tree on a nice summer day, which would be nice to think about today. You know what I'm saying? Those are all creative thoughts that are absolutely outside of us anatomically. Well, where does it come from? It comes from our soul and spirit. We understand that God created us body, soul, and spirit. We have this body, this sumit. We have this physical flesh in which we react in our environment and are able to you know, move around and do the things that God is calling us to do. But we have a soul, which is our personality of who we are as individuals. And that's why even as believers, we're all a little different. Wouldn't it be boring if we were exactly the same? Praise the Lord. Praise God. <laughs> How do you feel? You know what I mean? We'd be like robots. But we're all different. We all have different soulish um, you know, attributes and personalities that are wonderful. It makes us as different as the beauty of flowers that we see in a field. But then we have a spirit. And that spirit is only made alive through Jesus Christ when we're able to have communion with the Lord. And so it should work that in our communion with the Lord... It's able to affect our personality that through our body we can serve others and do the work of the ministry. You follow what I'm saying? And so it's so important for us to realize that we might only be one person, but God needs us. We're part of his body. And the question is that we have to understand is that the fact that God has made us as individuals is for a reason. You know... um, I have uh, high blood pressure, and, and you know, most of you know I had a heart attack. No damage. I'm back to absolute total physical activity. I can do what I've always done. I can walk about 100 feet. Anyway, uh, just joking. But the point is, I have certain medications that I take. I, I take one medication for my AFib, and I take another one for my blood pressure, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I can't take one you know, medication that is intended for a specific purpose and take another medication for it instead. The medications are very specific. And so God has made us very specific in serving him. Scripture tells us that we are the body of Christ. It says the body is made up of many parts, and yet each part is responsible for doing its own work. And sometimes the part of the body that we think Scripture, this portion actually says that, that we think the most, um, you know, modest, the Lord gives the greatest, you know, value to. And so we as believers, we have to understand that whatever our responsibility is, whatever God has given us to do, is important. You know, you think standing up here as a preacher is probably the most important job you can do. No, in fact, the Scripture tells us that he chooses those things that are pretty dumb in order to be, uh, you know, the preachers, to lift up. He doesn't say dumb. He says those things that are... Because the fact of the matter is, I have to understand my need for Christ in order to share that with you. And so that's the thing we have to understand. Now, um, nothing can distract us from the work of the ministry, right? Like personal problems, especially family problems. It really distracts you from the work of ministry. The reality is is that we have to become well and whole before we're able to serve the Lord. It's kind of like if you want to associate it with physical illness. If you're sick, you can't go to work. 
you have to get better before you can go to work, right? Well, in the same way, we can't serve the Lord if we have spiritual and emotional problems. We have to be able to take them to the Lord, be healed, and then we're able to serve Him. And so marital problems, personal problems, can really separate us from doing the work of the ministry. And, of course, that's what this portion is all about. And um, let me read this. This is taken from um, the Gospel of John, and it says this. Then the scribes and Pharisees... Well, I'll just tell you about it. Because this portion is about marital unfaithfulness, and that's the reason I'm reading this portion of Scripture. And this portion, if you take notes, write down John chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. This portion of Scripture tells us that Jesus was teaching, and all of a sudden the scribes and Pharisees, who really were always trying to dismiss Jesus and to make his ministry of no value because they thought it was all about religion, and Jesus was coming and teaching it's all about relationship. It's relationship with God. And so they were always trying to stumble him up because Jesus was teaching grace and mercy, grace and mercy. So what they did, the Pharisees, if you read this portion... They caught a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, it tells us. And they brought her to Jesus, and they said this. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. What should we do? The law says that she should be put to death. Well, number one, we have to understand the law said both the man and woman were to be put to death. The man wasn't brought. Isn't that interesting? But they said the law says she should be put to death. And that's when Jesus spoke the words that we all know. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Then he started writing in the sand. We have no idea what he was writing in the sand, whether he was writing the Ten Commandments out, different sins. And it says from oldest to youngest, they all left. And finally, Jesus went up to the woman, and this is the portion that I want to read, who was caught in the very act of adultery. And this is chapter 10 of this, of this portion. And... Um, he said to her, the woman, Woman, where are those accusers, accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. Now listen to this. This is so beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful, beautiful statements Jesus made. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Here's a woman caught in the very act of adultery, and Jesus said, I don't condemn you. But he said, go and sin no more. And that is the love of God. We're all sinners, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So Jesus says to every one of us, I don't hold any condemnation against you. I forgive you, but go and sin no more. In other words, it's important for us to be able to try to take hold of our lives and overcome whatever besetting sins might be holding us down. And so now we're coming to our portion of Scripture. It's Numbers um, chapter 5 and verses 11 through 31. Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31. Numbers 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, if any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and 
it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there are, listen, and there was no witnesses against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous for his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and uh, comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife. Listen to this: although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and he shall bring the offering required for her, one tenth of an ephah of barley meal, and he shall pour no oil on it, no frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering for bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, and put the offering of remembrance in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his right hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under an oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uh, uncleanness while under your husband's authority, and what that means under the husband's authority is obligations. In the Hebrew, it's the same word that means marriage. It's talking about if you're married. Um, be free from the bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under an oath of the curse, and she shall say, and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your this is where it comes, when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. Then the priest shall write these curses, in other words, these accusations and the curses that come if she is guilty, in a book, and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord, and bring it into to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as uh, its memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterwards make the woman drink the water. Then, when he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully towards her husband, that the water that brings the curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell and her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among the people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and, uh, and, many, and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall, then he shall stand, before, uh, stand the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall execute all the law upon her. Then the man shall be free 
uh, from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her guilt. It's a long portion, and it's kind of a weird per- portion, talking about bellies swelling and thighs rotting and you know unfaithfulness and this and that. But we have to understand, we can't take this portion as a double standard because it tells us in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy that a man and woman are subject to the same punishment. In other words, if there's adultery, both the man and woman involved in the adultery are punished, not just the woman. And so there's something more that's going on here. And I think that this portion really is a protection of the woman. Because according to the tradition of the rabbis, most of the women who were brought before the Lord and took this oath and drank the bitter water were innocent. So you see what I'm saying? If some husband brought a false accusation against his wife, this was a protection of the woman because it's telling us that there, was no, there were no witnesses. So it gives her an opportunity to stand before the Lord and before you know, um, her husband and say, I didn't do it, and this is proof because nothing happened to me when I partook of it. And um, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting that in Scripture... God is more concerned about spiritual adultery than physical adultery. Did you know that? I mean, physical adultery is used in order to point out the the harm of spiritual adultery. Remember in the first service I was talking about the fact that there were were a lot of tangible physical, um, you know, things that the Lord used in order to make a spiritual point. And we have to realize that the greatest adultery that we can commit is against the Lord. And Scripture makes that very clear. And, um, in fact, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll wait for you to get to it. First Corinthians chapter... Actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I was just trying to see if you were awake or if I'm awake. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 2 and 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 2, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband. This is talking about the Lord, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be uh, corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I love it that it says the simplicity that is in Christ. And I'll talk about that in a moment. For if he who comes, uh, for he, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which we have uh, not received, or a different gospel which we have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And so the point that we're looking at here is um, it's so easy to be deceived. There's so many things out there. You know, I've been in the ministry long enough that I've seen movements go through the church that are, that are just amazing. They have no biblical background, but they just go through the church. I don't know how many of you remember Holy Laughter. Any of you remember that? Oh, that was big. That was big going through the church. And those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, what would happen is the preacher would be up there and he'd start preaching, and all of a sudden somebody in the church would start laughing. Then another person would start laughing. Then another. Pretty soon the whole church, ha, ha, ha. People would be down on the ground rolling, ha, ha, ha. And they said, oh, what a moving of the Spirit. Well, I can tell you, that's a different spirit. 
That's what this portion is talking about. It's not the Lord. And so we have to realize that we need to stand on God's word as being the principles of our life. That's why I love it when it talks about the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of Christ. It's not anything that's really difficult to understand. The reality is we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Is there anything more than that? No, that's it. You know, people come to me, come to me at different times and they have said, what do I have to do to be saved? Just like they asked Jesus. And I say, well, just confess your sin and accept Christ. Well, what else do I have to do? That's it. And it's almost like it's not enough for them. Well, I want to do some kind of penance. I want to walk on my knees in glass. I want to do something. I want to whip myself. I want to do something to show that I'm really repentant. Well, the reality is, if you think you can do something in order to express your repentance, then you're taking the need of repentance away. Because you're trying to make yourself right before God in the flesh, on your own. There's nothing you can do. You know, there's... You know, we talk about the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer is simple. We find it in Scripture. God, forgive me, a sinner. What else? That's it. God, forgive me, a sinner. But, of course, you have to believe it in your heart. I'm a sinner. God, forgive me, knowing that he can and he will. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not a few, not a couple. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So anyway, if a woman has been accused by her husband because a spirit of jealousy has come upon her, and understand, there are two ways we can use the term jealousy. One is positive, one is negative. Like if I say, like we read here in Scripture, I'm jealous for you as a, as a, as a group of believers. It means, man, I'll tell you what, I don't want you getting involved in things that are wrong. I don't want you to be getting involved in false doctrine and false gospels. That's a very positive way. But if my jealousy is based on insecurity and possessiveness, then it's very negative. Because when you have either a husband or wife that has this kind of possessive insecurity towards the other person, and they're always jealous about this, always jealous about that, they have no peace. And there's really no love that can be expressed in that kind of environment. You know what I mean? If you think you need to check your spouse's cell phone and you need to check this and you need to check that and you need to do this and you need to do that, there's a problem. Because if you love someone, then you have to also have a trust. And that's the only thing that will bring peace. I can't imagine anything worse than always being jealous and never having any peace. And so this portion of Scripture is beautiful because the priest would stand the woman before the Lord and uncover her head. And you think, what does that mean? <clears throat> well, we can go back to Corinthians in the New Testament and talks about the covering for the woman. And so when the woman's, you know, is uncovered, it means she's standing directly before the Lord. In other words, the Lord is her judge. That's the tradition of why the head was uncovered. And so then the woman would stand before the Lord... And then all of these accusations that were made would be written on a piece of parchment. But the interesting thing is that they didn't use iron oxide in the ink when they printed this out, when they put it on the, the parchment. And the reason was is that without the iron oxide, it wouldn't become fast or permanent. So these accusations were made. The holy water was from the brazen lever. 
right here. This isn't the real one. But from the brazen lever, and it'd be put in, um, you know, to a, a bowl for her to drink from. And then also some of the dirt from the tabernacle floor would be put in. And then they would take the accusations, no iron oxide, so it didn't really stick firm to the paper, and they would wash it off into the water. The accusations would go into the water. And then the, the priest would say to the woman, you know, if you have committed sin, may your belly swell, your thigh rot, and all these kinds of things, you know, because you're, you're lying to the Lord. And when you drink this, it's going to be proof that you have. Then the woman would say, Amen. And in the Hebrew, this Amin, and it means so be it, or I agree. Like when we say Amen, you know, when someone's talking and they praise the Lord, and we say Amen, what we're saying is, I agree. I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you on that. So the woman has to agree. Yes, I, I accept the fact that if I'm guilty, this curse will come upon me. And then the woman, of course, she drinks it. And Scripture tells us if she has uh, committed adultery, then her belly would swell and her thigh would, would rot. And, and the word for thigh there is yarek, which means soft tissue. It's really talking more of the woman's private part, if you know what I'm talking about. And they just used thigh in the translation because they were uncomfortable with it. But the fact of the matter, when it talks about the belly uh, swelling and the thigh rotting, that's what it, it, it is actually talking about. And um, we have to understand that God does not want us to be taken away by sin. And so when we have things like this that are in Scripture, it's to encourage us to realize that if we have committed sin, we need to confess. Because the difference between what we have here and what we find in the New Testament is the difference between the law and grace. The law says if you've done this wrong, bam, this is your punishment. Grace says if you've done this wrong, confess and repent, you'll be forgiven. You follow what I'm saying? That's the difference. And so often when we read the law, we have to realize it is just making us aware of the beauty of grace and God's mercy because we are forgiven. And, um, you know, even Paul, he wrote to us about taking communion, which we'll be doing next week, and it says, Anyone who eats of this bread and drinks of this cup in an unworthy manner shall be eating and drinking judgment upon himself. Now, it doesn't mean that, that somehow you have to, you know, go through whatever before you take communion. It's just simply referring to the fact that as believers, we need to be willing to admit the sin areas that we're dealing with and confess and repent of it. There are some, this is the amazing thing that I don't fully understand, and, and one day when I'm before the Lord, I'll ask him about it. Of course, I won't need to because it says we'll know everything at that point. But um, why is it that there are some sins, we all agree with this, that we have 100% victory over? You know, I haven't smoked or drank alcohol in probably 40 years. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with you having a drink of wine, but a pastor is not supposed to be given to any alcohol. That's what the Bible says. So I don't drink because the Bible says so. But the reality is I have victory over both these. I, I don't even think about it. You know, there's never a time that I'm outside and I smell a cigarette and I say, oh, man, boy, I'd really love to have a drag of that. No. I have complete victory. So why is it I have victory over sins like that, but then other areas I still deal with? You know, all of us do. You know, your thoughts, your imaginations, the things that go through your head, um, your, your, your 
you know, whatever it might be. I mean, sometimes for me, one of the greatest difficulties that I deal with is at the table. You know what I'm saying? The Lord doesn't want me to be a glutton. The Lord doesn't want me to be unhealthy. And so when I sit at the table, sometimes that's very difficult for me. You know what I'm saying? I'll say, you know what? I'm just going to have three pieces of broccoli, and I'm going to have two ounces of meat and a big piece of cheesecake. <laughs> you understand what I'm talking about? And I'm just, I'm just using that as an example. There are so many things in our life that we continue to deal with. You know, we're human beings. We're males and females, and there are so many things that come our way. And, but the fact is we need to deal with it. You can't just say, well, that's just the way I am. I'm human. No, 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 no. If there is something that you're dealing with and you know it's wrong, you know it's sin, you've got to do something about it. You can't just let it roll like there's no big deal. Because we have to realize, Scripture says, and I shared this this morning as well, that conditional con conjunction is if. In other words, there's something that has to be done. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. But if we're unwilling to confess our sin, then guess what? We lie in our sin, in our own sin. I'm not talking about the fact that you're going to hell or you're losing your salvation. I'm just saying you'll have no joy and growth in the Lord. So we have to be willing to, to really confess from our heart those things that we're dealing with and ask God to forgive us and help us have victory over it. I don't know what there is in your life that you need victory over, but I sure know what there is in my life. And the reality is, it's not up to me to know what the problem is in your life. You know, so many Christians think they're the Holy Spirit, and their job is to go around and tell everyone what they're doing wrong and what they need to do right. There's only one Holy Spirit, and it's not me, and it's not you. My responsibility as a pastor is to preach the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to apply it to your heart and life. Not me. You know, we're not to go around, you know, popping off at one another. Well, you should... We pray for one another. But the reality is, as believers, as we go through the word of God and as we hear it preach, and we realize that there are things that, that, that it's speaking to us that we need to correct, correct it. Well, what if I fall again? Get back up. Remember that Frank Sinatra song? You know, when you, when you fall down, you just get up and get back in the race. Well, there's actually a scripture that somewhat relates to that. It says, though a righteous man, a righteous man, Falls seven times, he rises again. But we, it goes on to tell us, but the unrighteous, the sinner, the evil person, falls by calamity. In other words, they don't get back up. So that portion is telling us not that a righteous man never falls, but he gets back up. So you, as a righteous person, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm not saying you'll never fall to sin, but when you do, get back up. And God will forgive you, wash you off, and you continue on. And you have to understand, it's not like Monopoly, that if you fall, you have to go back to the beginning and start all over again. When you fall, you confess your sins, you repent, you get back up right where you fell, and you keep moving on with the Lord. What a beautiful promise that is. Now, the thing that's interesting is the rabbis, the tradition of the rabbis tell us, and that, I'm not going to getting back to the Pentateuch and, and also the Talmud and all that, it, it tells us what the rabbis believed at the time these were, were written. Most often, when a woman was accused by her husband and brought before the Lord, she was innocent. Most often. 
And so it was really a condemnation for the husband for having unreasonable jealousy. Follow what I'm saying? And so we have to realize that so much of what we read in Scripture that might seem harsh, there's really a beautiful thing there. You're putting your, you know, your, the accusations before the Lord because the only one that it matters is the Lord when it comes to sin. Whether people forgive you or not, if you confess your sin, Jesus forgives you. And you're able to move on with the Lord. Now, um, I'm so thankful to be under the covenant of grace. Because like you guys know, you've heard me sh- share this verse, I don't know how many times. You know, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. But we have, once again, we have to do something. We have to confess. Lord, forgive me, a sinner. I don't think there's any greater danger to the individual Christian than having a, a false assurance or even a wrong uh, concept of yourself. Well, I'm just about as holy and wonderful as can be. I mean, people are glad, should be glad that I'm even around. Or as a pastor, you know, when I stand up before these people, they're probably looking at me and saying, oh, thank God, we've got a pastor like that. That is absolutely wrong. We have to realize that we are all sinners saved by grace. And so our attitude towards one another should always be love and encouragement that we might grow, how? In the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice, we don't grow by punishment. We don't grow by people humiliating us. We grow by grace. You know, you've heard me share this example as well. Um, In baseball, they have what they call a batting average. And uh, do you guys know what baseball is? Any of you who are my age or, or older, maybe even a little bit younger, it used to be baseball was the thing. The NFL, you know how many games they played a season at that time? Ten. <laughs> that was it. And then you had um, the AFL, American. well, it wasn't the AFL then, it was the AFC, American Football Conference. They were like a college team. They, were, they weren't even in this, you know, they were nothing. But nobody watched football. Everybody watched baseball. They don't anymore. Just a little lament there. But anyway, um, because one of the greatest baseball players that ever played, in fact, he was MVP two years in a row. You know what his name was? Frank Thomas. It was. White Sox. Anyway, uh, if you have a batting average of, let's say, 350 to 400, you're considered a great hitter. Well, what that means between 350 and 400, it means 35 to 40% of the time you get on base. What? That's not very good. That's a good average, good batting average. And so we have to realize that in our walk with the Lord, we're not going to be perfect, but we need to keep swinging. Because if you have someone who never swings, they're never going to do anything. They're not going to have any average. So we need to keep swinging. We need to keep doing what God has called us to do. And if we fall, we get back up and we swing again. Because that's the God we serve. You know, any of us that think that we have to, re- we have to reach some kind of spiritual perfection before we're useful to the Lord, you'll never be useful for the Lord because you're like the batter who stands there and never swings. 
We need to do the work of the ministry that God has called us to. And you might make mistakes. You might make a lot of mistakes, but get back up and swing again. Because the Lord wants us to continue following hard after him. Father, we thank you for your word and for the truth that we find in it. And, and Lord, we're so thankful for the fact that uh, your Holy Spirit is able to forgive us by grace, not by the law. And I pray, Lord, that the things that we have touched on this morning would just ring clear and true in our heart, that we would be made useful to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, let me ask you to pray for something. Um, As most of you know, I've been working on a book on Revelation, actually four and a half years, more than on my my doctoral thesis. But the point is, it's ready to go to the publisher. Finally, you know, every time we thought it was ready to go to the publisher, we'd read it, and oh, we've got more things you know, change. And so I've got three publishers, and sent it to us who pray that the Lord would give me wisdom and it would get out there. I did not write the book to become famous or to sell a lot of copies. I wrote the book for you and for all believers because the book of Revelation is the most important book in the Bible in the sense that it's the only book that says blessed are those who read it, blessed are those who hear it, and blessed are those who practice it. It's the only book of the Bible that gives that promise. And people don't read the book of Revelation because they're afraid to. Because Christian tradition has taught so many false you know, concepts of how you interpret the book of Revelation. You need to go to here, then you need to go to there, and you come back, you need to come to here that people are afraid to read it. Well, in the book, I'm going to show you it's easy to understand that it's in in 100% chronological order. You don't have to go back and forth with it. And that it really is a blessing, especially in the times we're living. So just pray that the Lord would give me wisdom of, of which direction to go with it. And hopefully we'll be having some full printed copies out here in not too long. Okay? Thank you. Love you guys.